Our passage today is going to come from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. There is therefore, if you guys want to stand for the reading of God's word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are under the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if the Spirit is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with All right. You'll notice now that Cody's gone, we got a Jayhawk up here, finally. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Can I ask you a personal question? Now, depending upon who you are, that probably elicited one of two reactions in you right now. Either you're super excited and you say, oh man, you know, finally an opportunity to talk about a personal question, or you're like me. And you're saying, how can I get out of this? <laughs> in fact, if you want to see a Stephen-sized hole in the wall, come to a party and say, hey, Stephen, can I talk to you about something personal? I'm gone. <laughs> that, that is not what I'm interested in talking about. Um, and, and today I want to talk about two personal questions for me specifically uh, that, that are perhaps the most, uh, the most challenging. Um, one of them is at the doctor's office. Uh, that question goes something like this. It goes, what is your family medical history? Um, every time they ask it, and it's like they're trying to figure out the disease with the best Vegas odds of taking me out. You know, we want to move heart disease up plus 500 for Steven or, or you know, I, I don't like that question. Um, a, another question is ones that I get from friends, ones that I get from people that have known me a little longer, ones I've got from even strangers. Um, and, and that question, it comes in a lot of forms. 
but specifically it's around ethnicity. It says, you know, where are you from? Um, you know, there, there's a lot of ways to say that, but basically they're asking, what is your family? What is your ethnic heritage? Um, uh, some people ask that. Some people are good enough to just guess. Um, over the years, I've had Greek, Arab, Jewish, Indian, Vietnamese, which, you know, grace on that person with Vietnamese, but <laughs> I'm not sure where that came from, but it always comes to the same thing. They want to know that. And that is something that I have been historically uncomfortable with. But probably not for the reason you would imagine. See, I'm not primarily uncomfortable that somebody would seek to know me better. You know, what I'm primarily have been comfortable with is that I myself have not known the answer to those questions for the majority of my life, up to the last maybe five years. Um, See, I'm a product of a closed adoption. I, I was adopted at birth. I haven't had a lot of details where I come from. So those questions have historically made me uncomfortable, not because I don't want others to know the answer to them, but because I myself have wished to know the answer um, and have been a little anxious. So it has caused a little angst in my life not knowing the answer to that question. Um, now, I would imagine most of you don't have that ex same exact anxiety, but I would also gather that you probably do have some uncomfortable questions we can ask, and I want to start today by asking one of those, and that question is this, who are you? Who are you really? What actually defines who you are? If I had to pin you down and say, define yourself to me. How would you do it? Now, we're in church, so I would imagine most of you would say, well, I define myself as a Christian, and praise God for that. Um, but the question then is, what does that tangibly mean? When you define yourself as a follower of God, who are you? I, Paul's going to lay out three truths in this passage about who we are as Christians and what that tangibly means. And we see that in verse 1 through 4. We see the start, and the first truth is this. That Paul says that Christians are free in the Spirit. Now, this is interesting. If you were here last week for chapter 7, uh, Cody preached Paul, and, and what he rightly pulled out Paul saying that, that I agree with is this passage we get to with Paul addressing the tension of being a Christian in this sentiment that I do the things I hate. This idea that we cannot escape or we feel like sometimes we cannot escape participating in things that we hate. And yet in verse 1 of this chapter, Paul says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we ask ourselves, how is that possible? See, Cody said last week something that I wish people had told me when I started to become a Christian, when I became a Christian and accepted Jesus, is it's not an idea of when you become a Christian, you get to the point where you're like, oh, I pretty have, much have sin under control. I feel good about that. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The longer you're a Christian, the longer we stand before a righteous God, the more we see how unrighteous we are and the more our sin is evident to us. We do the things we hate. We do things that we might not have hated five years ago, and now I find myself hating that part of me. And yet I'm doing it. And Paul then says, though, 
There is no condemnation. How is that possible? Imagine the things you hate, and then imagine how offensive those things must be to an almighty God. If I hate those things, how much must God hate those actions? And yet Paul says there is no condemnation. And condemnation in this sense, a legal term, means there is no penalty. And it's important to notice, Paul doesn't say there will be no condemnation. Paul doesn't say you are currently not condemned. What Paul says is there is no penalty, meaning the concept of penalty does not apply to us anymore. There is no condemnation, past, present, future, for Christians. And Paul says how this is possible. In verse 3, it says, For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, as Christians, we talk about guilt for sin. And sometimes we get, I think, into this idea of if I just feel guilty about the things I've done, that's a motivator to not do it. I wish I would feel guiltier and guiltier, and if I just feel bad enough, that will guide my behavior away. And I want you to understand today, Christians, repentance is good. Contrition is good, guilt is a legal term, and you have been found not guilty. Guilt is a legal term. In fact, if we want to judge and guide our behavior from guilt, we miss the point of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, Paul lays out this concept. He says, for the love of God, the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live no longer live for for themselves, but for him for who their sake died and was raised. That the one who had no guilt died, in this last part, to take on our own. See, guilt was laid on the cross on the one that took on that guilt. Guilt is not our motivator. We are free from condemnation, but if we are free from something, and Cody made this, week a few, this point a few weeks ago in chapter 6, if we are free from something, we have to be free to something. See, we have to serve something. There's no ultimate freedom where we're completely free from anything. If we're free from something, in this case, guilt and condemnation, we have to be free to something. And in verse 4, we see Paul lay out what that is. We are free to fulfill the law. See, although we deeply, deeply relate to chapter 7, I do the things we hate. I do the things I hate. We have to understand the gospel says we are free from having to do those things. We don't have to do those things. See, you don't have to actually go to those websites. You don't actually have to gossip. You don't have to actually cut people down with your words. You don't have to drink too much. You don't actually have to do those things. See, we see there is freedom But in their freedom, we're also removed from excuse. See, Paul's saying we don't actually have to sin. We're not stuck in that. And I think as Christians sometimes, 
If we're not careful, we follow this theology that says, this is my personal sin. I can hold it down a little bit, but I'm always going to be falling into it again and again. There's nothing I can do. I can't make any meaningful change. I can just delay it. And Christians, that is a lie. We are free to fulfill the law. We have freedom in that. Do we actually believe that? Do we believe that? And this is how it might look if we don't. Today's culture, we'll be very familiar with, gives us plenty of reasons to excuse our own behavior. If you want a reason to justify anything you're doing, you can find a secular or sometimes even a Christian resource that will tell you that you are actually a slave to that and you can't help it. And this is going to get, speaking of a little uncomfortable, I'll give some examples of this. Maybe it's this concept of trauma in the past. I was traumatized, now I have to do this. Maybe it's this concept of unfairness, injustice, oppression, call you whatever you want. I have been treated poorly in a way that I can't help, so now I have to fight back and do X. I have to. Christians, that is not the gospel. Maybe it's a cause that we're pursuing. Maybe it's a cause that is biblical and good, and I'll tell you what, you can go out right now in 2021 and find a dozen causes that we could all say, you know, these are good, these are biblical, you'll see people fighting for them all the time. But hear this, there is no excuse for sin. In as much as any of us, the worst of which is me, have violated God's law in defense of things that are good, we were free not to do so. The ends does not justify the means in the gospel. Paul says we are free to live a life that pleases God. What would it look like today in this country if we saw Christians as people who rejoiced in their freedom from guilt and condemnation, but also embraced their freedom to fulfill the law of God, what would that look like? Now, second truth we see in verses 5 through 13, Paul says Christians are alive in the Spirit. In fact, an indicator of where you are today is where you have been. If you're sitting here as a Christian, say, that defines me. Part of what makes that impactful is who you were before that change happened. And Paul understands that and speaks to that starting in verse 5, and he talks about the mind of the flesh. Who we were, the mind of the flesh is death. He goes on to say the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. Who we were, but we have to be careful, Christians, because as we are moving past that and we do not have a mind on the flesh, if we're not careful, we can align with that mindset again. And I'll tell you how this could happen. Say, I talked about things that we care about and causes we care about. And today we are overwhelmed with books. We are overwhelmed with social media, with public figures, with news figures, with politicians. We are overwhelmed with resources and people that would speak into those things. And they may actually align with some things that we think is true and we think in the gospel. But what we have to understand, friends, is if an ideology 
comes from a person who rejects Christ as Lord that is an ideology of death. It is an ideology of death. It is a mindset on death. And while death might be able to point out other death, and we might agree, it will be wholly incapable of giving a God-pleasing answer to any problem it points out. Anybody that is rejecting Christ will be incapable, incapable of pleasing him, incapable of actually fixing the problem. And the reason for that is if you want a solution of life, it cannot come from somebody who is consumed with death. The solution for life comes from the word of life, God's word. We have to be careful not to realign ourselves with death. Jesus highlights this concept because the idea we say Christians, non-Christians cannot please God. And to us, that feels weird because we see all these people that don't love Jesus, but they're saying really good things and they're saying things God agrees with. And, and that may be true, but Jesus highlights this concept in a parable, I, I think perfectly. And the parable of the wicked tenants. And in that parable, there's a landowner and that landowner leases out his land to some tenants. And those tenants then work on the land, and it's time for the landowner to go get his harvest. So he sends some servants to come get it. So what do they do? They beat them up. They say, nope, we're keeping it. Get out of here. Okay? So he sends some more people. They beat them up. Say, nope, get out of here. So then he sends his son, because surely they'll listen to him. This is my son sent on my behalf, and they kill him. So now the landowner's coming back, and he's coming with an army. Now we hear that story, but what if the servants, when that army comes up, what if they said this? What if they said, hey man, I used all the fertilizer you asked me to use. I watered it every day. I followed all your instructions. You would have wanted this. This is good and right, and this is what you wanted me to do with the land. Why are you so mad? And we would look at those servants, and we would say the arrogance of that position. The arrogance of that position. See, and as much as those servants did anything that was pleasing to that owner, it was done under an ideology that he was not the owner. It was their land and they were willing to kill his son to retain it. See, that's where we were before God. And if we look at that and go, how is that an ideology of death? We should see that. In fact, in that story, it is true of following anybody that does not hold Christ as Lord. The ultimate and obvious outcome is death. We would read that story and expect nothing else. If there's a single person left on that vineyard, it would be shocking to us. The obvious outcome of a mind of death, of an ideology of death, is death. But there's good news for Christians here. In verse 11, Paul says we have life in the Spirit. So Jesus conquered death so that we could have life, we aren't in debt to sin anymore. It says in verse 12, we don't have that death. It does not dominate our bodies. It does not dominate our minds. In fact, in verse 13, I want you to see this, our relationship with death fundamentally changes. 
See, we still have a relationship with death, but in verse 13, you will see we are the ones giving out the death. In verse 13, it says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of your body. You will live. See, our relationship with death is not the recipients of that death anymore, praise Jesus, our relationship with the death is that we are to dole out death, not to other people, but we are empowered to dole out death to the sin in our own lives. We are free to dole out death to the sin in our lives. And we're used to this concept of doling out death to sin, and I'd argue we're used to it because primarily our inclination is to take this route with the sin of others. See, I have no tolerance for other people's sin. It is absolutely unacceptable to me. If it's there, I see it, I want to kill it. I can't stand the sin of others. In fact, I think we see this in the last 18 months. I think we have become a culture with record highs of introversion, and we have become a culture with record lows of introspection. We've been a culture of record highs of introversion. We have been a culture of lows of introspection. And what I mean by that is it's so easy to sit in my own home and focus every day on how everybody else needs to get their life together. And friends, I am the most guilty of this mentality. It is so easy. It is so easy to sit in my house and look out on the world and say, man, everybody needs to get together. It's messed up. But that's not what we're called to do. You see, it's easier for me to sit alone and focus on others because if I don't do that, what I'm forced to do is sit alone in my home and face and do battle with the depravity in my own heart. That is not pleasant. But it's what we're called to. See, forgiveness this year took a backseat to frustration. I'm frustrated with everybody else. Are we doing this? Is this what we truly want? Do we really want sin to die? Because killing something is harder than wounding something. See, if we're not careful... We have a relationship with sin where we want to wound it. Oh, I want to only come back to this sin a couple times a year and I'll feel good about it. I, I, if I only visit that website twice a year, three times a year, then I'm happy. That's good. You know, that's pretty righteous, right? If we only get drunk on holidays, that's better than I was, right? So, so I'm happy with that. You know, if, if I only gossip when it's really, really juicy, that, that one time, that's okay. Right, Because I, I, I usually don't do this. And we even say the phrase as Christians, like, oh, I'm not usually like this, as if that makes you know, violating God's law better. Do we want to kill sin? Or do we want to make it more manageable? See, so we're called to do battle with it. We're called to kill it. And this is something that I see. There's a, there's a reason this is called living in the Spirit. And I know this because the alternative to that, to an outward focus, is not living. 
And I've seen it happen so many times. I've seen it happen to myself. If we sit in our groups and judge the sin of others, eventually, eventually that will come back to you. Eventually, people are going to find out that I am not so righteous, that I violated the things that I demand other people uphold, and eventually that's coming back to me, and I will live in fear for the rest of my life that people will realize what a hypocrite I am. That's not life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit is me focusing on my own sin. So then I can speak into other things. See, there's no freedom in an ideology that leads to death. There's no freedom in an ideology of only focusing on others. There is freedom in taking our own sins to the cross. That is where freedom resides. We'll see in verse 14 through 17, we are adopted in the Spirit. See, the final truth we see is that Christians are adopted in the Spirit. See, while few of us are products of earthly adoption, we are all, as Christians, recipients of spiritual adoption. We are children of God, and there's two main points that I want to highlight in the concept of spiritual adoption. The first one is this, and I want to focus here for a second because this is one of the biggest lies we tell ourselves as Christians. It's one of the biggest lies we repeat and think it's spiritual, and it is this. When we look out at humanity and somebody's treating someone some way or something, and we say this phrase, we say, well, we're all children of God. Friends, that is not true. All of humanity are not God's children. And we see in verse 14, it says, For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. People led by death are not children of God. And I I know this is maybe a hard concept because we hear it all the time. I want to back this up somewhere else in Scripture. Um, John 1, 12 says this. It says, speaking of Jesus, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. See, that is something that is given. That is not a privilege that we are born into. That is given by God to his children. And I'll highlight why this is important. One of my favorite things here Sunday mornings is listening to Cody preach and talk about his son Silas. One of my favorite things in the world. It makes my heart so happy. And he says things like, you know, he may not look like us, he may not be his, our blood, but that kid is a waterman. I love that. And I love it primarily because, man, when I was growing up in the 90s as a product of adoption, I wish I heard that from the pulpit. The biblical concept of adoption is amazing, and it's wonderful, and I love that. Now imagine if Cody said this right after it, But I really consider all you guys watermens, you're all my family. Now, Silas is going to sit there and go, seriously, man? (laughs) What are you saying? You just detracted from the beauty of that choice that you made to take me into your family. You just spread it out to everybody. That's not the truth. See, being children of God is an immense privilege. It's not a basic human right, and that has a unique relationship. I can be close to Cody, but I will never be as close as Silas is. That relationship is fundamentally different. That is the concept of adoption. 
It's a unique relationship, and it goes on to say what that relationship looks like. God is not just our authority. He is not just the person that upholds the law. He is our Father. We are not in fear. We are not in slavery. In fact, we can go to the creator of the universe and yell, Abba, Father, in verse 14, or Dad. That we get to call the creator of the universe dad. And friends, somebody living in death does not get to go to, call, go to God and call him father. That is exclusive to children of God. Now, second note here is the word sons. And in today's age, we can blow over this. We, I could say, well, the, the phrase sons means like the gender neutral of the masculine, meaning like mankind or men in general, just talking about everyone. But I think this actually detracts from the text. I think Paul actually fully intends to use the masculine, we are sons of God here. And, and I'll, I'll explain why. See, today we can be tempted to think that we are leaving women out of this picture, and that is not the case. The concept of adoption back then was much like the concept is today. When you were adopted, you were severed from your old family ties. That was gone. You were taken into the family, and you stood to reap the benefits of being in that family. You took the name, you were in. But there was something particularly different about sons. See, sons got the inheritance. Sons that were adopted were to receive the full inheritance of their father. See, if you would look at my parents' will, you would see my name on it. So I hope so. If you look at there, you would see my name, and there is no asterisk on that name saying like, well, you know, maybe he kind of wasn't part of us, he joined late, whatever. No, it's there as their son to inherit Legally, what Paul is saying, he's not saying some kind of gender statement because certainly we would, Paul would say, in fact, women can obviously be Christians. Women are obviously children of God. Paul is not saying women or men in the gender, but what he's saying is everybody, women included, are legally sons in this adoption, meaning women will inherit and reap the full legal benefit of being sons. Friends, that is radical for right now. That is radical for when this was written. And if we change the text there, I think we fundamentally remove the power of what Paul is saying. What an immense privilege that everybody in God's family are set up as heirs. Show equal heirdom. Christians are co-heirs with Christ, Paul goes on to say. He says the Spirit himself is a witness in verse 16. See, we have the benefit as Christians of having the Holy Spirit that witnesses to us, and we can see the outpouring of the Spirit in our own lives. We can see the Spirit's work in our conscience, in our words. That change within us is a testament that you are a child of God. You are adopted by God. Paul says that's how you know is the Spirit. So we are heirs to what? And I think Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 is a good highlight for this. I've been reading through Hebrews this month. And Hebrews starts, the writer of Hebrews starts, says this. It says, long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things 
through whom he has also created the world. You see, we are co-heirs with Christ in that, in all of the riches of God. We have to understand the significance of what is being said. We are co-heirs with Christ. Now, Paul leaves us here with, with a thought that Cody will pick up next week. I think it's important in verse 17. See, being part of a family is not all the positive or easy things that come with it. See, when I was adopted as a stall, I'm not just adopted into the really good things that happen to the stall family. As much as anything bad happens to the stall family, it also happens to me because that is what family is. Family goes through hard times together. I'm not segmented away from the hard stuff because I was adopted. So Paul says there will be suffering. You are partakers in the suffering of Christ because if you weren't, you're not actually family. If we didn't take the suffering of Christ, we would be people that show up every once in a while on the weekends to hang out, but families go through hard times together, and Paul says that will happen. But the encouragement in this for us is that we get to call Abba Father. We get to call Dad when we're going through that suffering. And what a privilege it is to go through that suffering with Christ. So who are you really? If you're a Christian, that answer is simple. You are not how the world defines you. You are not in one of the hundred groups that the world wants to place you in today to say this group versus this group or all that stuff. You're not that stuff. You're not somebody who is a drunk. You are not somebody who is lustful. You're not someone who is gossip. You're not defined by the world. You're not defined by your sins. You are free in the spirit. You're alive in the spirit. You're adopted in the spirit. That's who you are as a Christian. You're a child of God. So what does that practically mean? Our sermon in a sense is this. God's children are free to please him. See, John Mayer, I'm a big fan of John Mayer. I'm sad Coleman's not here because he'd like that shout out. Um, John Mayer, I have always liked his music, but there's one song in particular that John Mayer released a few years ago. I love this song because for me, it has become kind of a song that described a lot of my life. And I think it is a very, very poignant song. Um, it's called In the Blood. And, and I'll read some of the first verse here. Um, it says this. It says, How much of my mother has my mother left in me? How much of my love will be insane to some degree? What about this feeling that I'm never good enough? Will it wash out in the water? Or is it always in the blood? See, my biological mother wants zero to do with me. So I've carried the complications of that for my life. Sin has consequences. Um, th those decisions have split my family. They've delayed my siblings and I having a relationship for 30 years. That's where I came from. See, here's another uncomfortable question, but I'll say this. This is a question that adopted kids ask themselves instead of being asked. And the question is this. 
Why didn't they want me? But here's the thing. I'm not defined by where I came from. The truth is, somebody actually did want me. Somebody made that sacrifice for me. Somebody chose me into their family. And that is what defines who I am today. And Christians, that is what defines you. We share that in Christ. Somebody did call you into their family. They chose you into their family. So what an immense honor that is. And now we're free to worship. Now we're free to please the father that called us and chose us into that family. If you're a Christian, you're free to do that, friends. You're free to do that. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done up to today. It doesn't matter what you've thought about doing. It doesn't matter the mistakes you've made. You are actually free and capable of pleasing God. Christians, are you taking advantage of that great blessing? Are we actually doing that? See, sin is not an annoyance in your life. It is death. It is a tax collector banging on your door for debt that you do not owe. It's been paid. Are we living like that? See, to, take, to not take sin seriously is to forget the family you are in. It's to forget the adoption. It's to forget who your father is. But maybe you're here today and you're thinking, I'm not really sure I'm a child of God. I haven't really gone through that or accepted that. I don't know that I believed it. And I would say the uncomfortable thing for you in this passage is going to be this. Paul says, your mind is set on death. You are an enemy of God. There is no middle ground. If you do not accept Christ as Lord, you are the tenant in the vineyard. And no matter how good the grapes look, you are the enemy. Are you following an ideology of death? It's not too late to join God's family. All you have to do is repent of your sin and believe that spirit of life Cast Jesus into your heart, and then you too can dwell as a co-heir in God's family.